The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Many of you who know me know that the place that I attended for my undergraduate education was strict, as in makes the Naval Academy look like a walk in the park, strict. It was the sort of place that if anyone in authority said they needed to talk to you, you immediately knew you were in trouble, at least if you're me. <laughs> Anytime my dorm supervisor needed to talk to me, I knew that it wasn't because he wanted to be friends. It was because I had done something wrong and he wanted to see if I would admit it. Well, after a year there, I couldn't take it. So I set out a semester and then I transferred to a small Christian college outside of Salem that is still, by most university standards, very strict. But compared to what I had experienced, this place was like Woodstock. I mean, people would wear their pajamas to class instead of the required khakis, collared shirts, and ties that I had grown accustomed to. You could even walk on the same sidewalk as the opposite gender. I may have seen people holding hands. It was quite Parisian. Well, my first week there, I was setting up my dorm room, and I got a call from my dorm supervisor. He wants me to come down and talk to him. Of course, I'm racking my brain. I've only been here for three days. What could I have done? 
hardened throat, palms sweaty. Turns out he just wanted to make sure I was doing okay. I was a new student who had transferred in in the middle of the year, and he was a really nice guy who was really there to just get to know me and be a friend and a guide during a, a season of my life when having adult men in your life would be a great, wonderful thing. He was trying to be a guide, not a tyrant. Over the years, I've had to recalibrate my view of people in authority. You can ask my wife, if any of you want to see me sweat, just say, I think we need to talk. And I'll immediately assume I'm in trouble. In our gospel text this evening, John the Baptist is undergoing just such a recalibration. John, when we saw him last, was all fire and vinegar. He was the axe in the hands of God himself, clearing out the dead timber in the Lord's forest. But John had a keen understanding that his ministry was more like Kool-Aid compared to the one that he was going ahead of. The real fire was yet to come. The Messiah, the one of whom John said he was unworthy to carry his sandals, was coming into the world, and he would bring a baptism of spirit and fire. So John is, of course, almost immediately confounded as his cousin, the Christ, comes to him for baptism. As Jesus begins his ministry, John begins to fade into the background, but his tongue continued to flick fire, and he eventually lands himself in prison. So what gives? The Messiah that John foretold was one who was supposed to be liberating captives. He was supposed to be bringing a righteous fire across the land to burn off all of the chaff of unrighteousness. Did John get it wrong? Why was he languishing in prison if Jesus was supposed to be bringing freedom to captives? So he sends his followers to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Notice the humanness of John's question. He can't talk himself out of expectation altogether. He still wants to expect that something better is coming. He just wants to know if he's bet on the wrong horse. Where's all the fire and brimstone? Where's all the judgment of God's enemies? Now, I think if we're honest... If John's idea of Jesus had a bit too much habanero, ours tends to have a bit too much sugar, doesn't it? We tend to think of Jesus as a sweet, kind friend. But just the same, we will find ourselves in situations that will force us, like John, to recalibrate our idea of who Jesus is, to get it fixed more toward reality than toward our own fantasy. John's question is our question. Are you the one, Jesus? Some of us seem to have this idea of Jesus as the best friend who is there to say whenever we say something like, I don't know, I just really want it. He says, yeah, you should buy it. You deserve it. Right? Or he's this emotion modulator who keeps us from feeling anything too strongly. Just kind of keeps us nice and centered, right? Perhaps he's a fairy godmother whose main task is nothing more than wish fulfillment. 
So when we encounter the true and living word as he teaches us to give to the poor, to take up our cross, to die to self, to find freedom in enslaving ourselves to him, and we find ourselves locked in the prison of materialism and greed and self-fulfillment and lack of restraints, and yes, that is a prison. We will be faced with the same choice as John in those moments. We can either maintain our expectation and begin to look for another savior who matches our expectation, or we can have our expectations shift to match the true and living word who is himself life and light. This mismatched expectation isn't hypothetical either. It's happening to all of us all the time. As John tells us in the prologue to his gospel account, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The humility and grace that frames the incarnation of Christ is so out of step with how we think about power and might that from the very first Christmas to this one, we have struggled to believe that this could really be God in the flesh, God with us. The incarnation is the most radical and subversive act ever in human history, and it reveals the deep joy of who God is in his person, utter joy. If you'll allow me a bit of a finger wag, I think many of us fail to really sense the joy of the incarnation viscerally because we have failed to meditate on the Theotokos, on the God-bearer, on Mary, the mother of Christ. We have failed to consider closely and through long periods of time the incarnation, the actual miracle that a virgin brought forth God the Son. Even prenatal John leapt for joy when the mother of his Lord drew near. It was Mary who upon hearing from God's messenger sings, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor upon his lowly servant. Mary sees kings from the east come and worship her baby boy. Mary ponders all of these things in her heart. Mary is told that the sword will pierce her heart also. Mary stands at the foot of the cross as she watches her child the one that she taught to speak, the one whose food she would chew up in her mouth so that he could swallow it, the one whom she would hold at night when he was feverish, the one at whom she smiled and laughed as her own flesh and blood took his first step, who wept as he got his first cut because she knew as only a mother could the pain and horror that would come. Mary held on her lap, in her arms, the salvation not only of her own soul, but of the world. And even Mary, it's hinted, throughout Christ's ministry has to recalibrate her ideas 
about who Jesus, her own son, really is from time to time. The incarnation is joy and grace and humility, and it is utterly confounding. If you follow a Jesus that doesn't require you to re-estimate him, you've got the wrong man. Following Jesus requires that we are constantly recalibrating our idea of him to the reality of him. And the way that we recalibrate our understanding of Jesus is laid out for us ingeniously in Matthew's writing here. The way that Jesus answers John's followers isn't to say, go and tell John that I say this or that, or that I have done X, Y, or Z. No, he says, go and tell John what you see, what you hear. And it's astoundingly in the present tense. It's not what you have seen and heard, it's what you are seeing and hearing. The call is for you and I, as the reader, to see and hear, to then go back and trace through Matthew's gospel, beginning in the chapters where Jesus goes and heals a man with leprosy, to see him give life and healing to the centurion's servant, to see him heal Peter's mother and the dozens that were brought to him afterwards. You see him heal a paralyzed man and pronounce forgiveness of sins, and you hear him preach the Sermon on the Mount. The difficult good news that the law is not merely about externals, but about the heart. But here's the thing. In going back and seeing and hearing in Matthew's gospel again, you're not just doing a research project. You're not just trying to tally up the things about Jesus to then compare notes with yourself and see how much you need to recalibrate. No, no, no. When you read Scripture in the context of the prayer life of the apostolic church, okay, I'm talking about being here on Sundays and doing daily liturgical prayer with Scripture. When you do that, the Spirit attends, and you truly and actually and really encounter the risen Christ. When you go back and read scripture along with the church, you are encountering the risen Son of God. He's there. This is what Matthew is intent on showing us here. You see, Jesus in this text begins to tell the crowds about John, but Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Look again. Jesus tells the crowds that John is the fulfillment of Malachi 3. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you, is what Matthew writes down. But what Malachi wrote down was, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, says the Lord Almighty. Matthew is telling us Jesus is Yahweh. He is the Almighty God who created all things. Jesus tells the crowd that there is no one who has ever been born that is greater than John the Baptist. No one. But that whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Matthew is telling us this is the king of that kingdom. 
The greatness of Christ is so far beyond the greatness of John the Baptist that it doesn't even register on the same scale. Can you imagine? But even as we have our breath stolen away by the surpassing greatness of Jesus, he turns us again toward joy. After all, a man being accused of being a glutton and a drunk is nothing if not joyful, right? And he befriends the likes of us, tax collectors and sinners. Wherever you find yourself this evening, if you feel imprisoned by anxiety or anger, if you feel bowed down with doubt or despair, hemmed in and brittle with bitterness, if you are sleepwalking through pains of the past or drudgery in the present, I invite you in this place to encounter the risen Christ, the true Son of God who has come into the world. And if you have not met him, I encourage you, ask him. In this silence that is to follow, ask him to speak. Ask him to speak his words to you. Trust that he has words to say to you. If you have met Christ and been baptized into his church, but you need your idea of him recalibrated by reality, then I invite you in a moment to come to this table and to know him in a new way as you grind your teeth together. As the wine burns your tongue with sweetness, know him as he truly is. This Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. And the psalmist tells us what? He remains faithful forever. For the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.